Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Best Boss Ever podcast series. I'm Carl Thomas, your host for the series, where every week we'll explore the best and the worst bosses, employees, relationships, leadership, management styles, what works, what doesn't, and why, and everything in between. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Harlan Stone, Senior Advisor to CSM, one of the fastest rising global agencies competing alongside the likes of CAA and William Morris Endeavor. Harlan's currently the Senior Advisor to CSM, formerly the North American Chairman, so he's had very serious operating roles for the last 20 plus years in the sponsorship agency selling business. Harlan, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for being here. Uh, thank you, Carl. Nice to uh, hear your voice, and nice to uh, catch up. Uh, so appreciate it. Thanks for the invite. No, my pleasure. Listen, you've got a super impressive background of launching very successful sponsorship selling agencies over the past 20 years. Can you give us just a bit of perspective on those startups? I know we could go way back, but you know, in the last 20 years, the world yeah. of sponsorship has changed dramatically, and you've been literally at the epicenter. Well, that's, uh, that's uh, a nice buildup. Uh, I, I actually, I realized the other morning, I have actually been at it for 40 years, but I won't put anybody listening to, uh, to sleep with the ancient history. But, you know, over the last uh, 20, 25 years, um, have had some good stops. Uh, you mentioned CSM. Uh, I had a little agency called SJX, which was uh, in, the, in the property representation sponsorship selling business. And we sold that to CSM in 2014. And I'm still hanging around a little bit. Uh, previously, I had the uh, chief business officer role at the USTA. So had a nice uh, four plus year stint directly working for the property and, and, and primarily driving uh, TV rights and uh, sponsorship revenue for them. And, you know, other than a couple of small stops elsewhere, had a, had a seven-year run at an agency called Velocity, uh, now called MKTG, which was acquired by Dentsu Aegis. Uh, interesting, Carl, that that was a five-man partnership. And uh, prior to that was in another five-man partnership, the a very successful agency that's known as Octagon Now. Uh, back when I was there, it was called Advantage International, which itself was acquired. Uh, and uh, we changed our name to uh, Octagon when we were acquired in 1997 by Interpublic Group. And I guess the, uh, you know, the, the, the so, so common thread in all those roles, sales, uh, some sponsorship consulting, some working directly for the brands, but really just, um, you know, mostly property clients. And I just think, you know, if I had one overall theme, the level of sophistication and, and the tools to reach consumers uh, are both so much stronger and in the case of tools broader than they were 25, 30 years ago, it's extraordinary. I mean, I grew up in the, in the, in the business that was an awareness and hospitality business and it's moved light years to, and engagement, content, delivery, uh, business. Not that awareness and hospitality have disappeared, but the, the percentage uh, of importance 
uh, has gone down as, as other more effective ways of reaching customers has gone up. Well, that's, that's for sure. And I want to talk a little bit more about that in, in a couple of minutes, because truly it's really all around measurement. Every CMO on the planet right now who green lights a sponsorship better be able to justify it, rationalize it, and actually prove it with data sets and performance all around strategic goals and objectives. Otherwise, a CFO and a CEO are, are, are just not going to sign off. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 just, just the sheer numbers on major properties are, are so large that you know, it's a good thing for the industry that it's subject to that scrutiny, which it wasn't 20 years ago. Right. So I want to hearken back a little bit to your comment around USTA. Those in our audience that might not be aware, the primary property of USTA is the U.S. Open of tennis, played at Flushing Meadows, one of the four global majors. And you played a very significant role there. Share a little bit about what you learned there. Kind of give us a, you know, broad strokes. You don't have to give us precise numbers, but a little bit of the orders of magnitude that you experienced and were successful in selling and positioning around that, that great platform, the U.S. Open Tennis Championships. Sure, sure. So, um, you know, first of all, it's, it's uh, no matter who is selling events of that magnitude, and, you know, it's fairly competent people typically, but those events are, are, are bigger than the, than the people that are out uh, selling them, right? It's just an extraordinary event. And there's, there's a dozen around the world, but there's not 50 events of that sort of stature around the world. And that's one of the things you learn is that you're, first of all, you're out asking for five, 10, in some cases, even $15 million deals. So you're, you're dealing at the, at the C level. Um, for me, it was rare, uh, to have an event that had a significant global television impact. So um, we're on the one hand, uh, awareness, you know, is no longer typically the prim primary criteria. Nevertheless, on, a, on an event of global stature, um, part of the way you position your company as a global player is by the company you keep. And, an and the U.S. Open enjoys an extraordinary track record of, of 25 year plus sponsorships which, with brands like IBM. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, American Express, I think probably in year 15, 16 with Mercedes, super high quality brands. So one of the ways that actually we would go out and package and sell is, is that company you keep sort of notion, right? If you're an up and coming brand or a brand that's more recently gone global, that's the, those are the kinds of partnerships that you want to be alongside of. That was a lot of our presentation to Emirates Airlines. Uh, who's now been a partner for for 12 years, is um, you know it's 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 part of a badge of credibility that you're sort of big enough and global enough to partner with the U.S. Open and to sit alongside these other huge important brands. So I think that's a lot of the way we sold it. I think the other um, thing that the U.S. Open uh, does very smartly, Carl, is think about the sponsorship architecture, right? what's the right number of brands, what's the right tiering, and let's have, not have too many because you know, scarcity does provide some value. So if you carefully look at the US Open, you will not see more than 10 brands visible on center court. And they're all leadership brands. 
And then in addition to those 10 brands that are sort of the global partners, there are no more than eight to 10 suppliers. And those suppliers actually supply something. So it's water, it's tennis balls, it's Coca-Cola, it's, uh, it's uh, whatever the specific need is. The open enjoys the benefit of not having to go out and get every single dollar from everyone. Um, and so there are legitimate supplier categories, global partner categories, and it's a sensible architecture. In terms of scale, Carl, you asked, I mean, I mean, roughly it's a $300 million enterprise. And those dollars are roughly split from a revenue standpoint between um, sponsorship, television rights, and tickets and hospitality. Well, the platform is e enormous, and, and we've now heard sort of the quantification around it. And for our audience, those lessons that essentially suggest less is more, fewer, better sponsors, positioned the right way, compatible and synergistic, and then a very thoughtful strategic approach to the raw numbers of sponsors as well as the categories they fill for anyone coming up in the sponsorship selling business right now, whether they're at an agency or on the property side, that is decades of wisdom, folks. That is awesome. So Harlan, pivot a little bit with me here. U.S. Open, a sports property. I know there are a number of sports properties you've sold, but have you exclusively sold against the sport the sport uh, category, or do you have some entertainment and or music and or arts or culture or any other uh, of those things that you could share with us? Sure. You know, have probably tracked the industry, right? Which is about sponsorship spending in our industry is still north of 65% sports. But, um, you know, the principles are the same in entertainment. I would point out probably Cirque du Soleil uh, as the uh, probably biggest example of a property that I've had the chance to sell and work on. Um, and, uh, you know, and Cirque's fantastic, uh, like, any, like any live property going through a tough time now. You know, what I would say, Carl, is put music off to the side. Arts and cultural, those organizations, uh, it's not that they're less sophisticated, it's they may be less brave or bold uh, when it comes to embracing their partners, right? I think the the the, the sports uh, properties are willing to try stuff, um, commercially oriented. You know, still want to enhance their properties with brands that make sense and brands that that are good fits. Um, it's harder in the arts, right? And understandably. Right. Um, uh, so I think if, if there was an overall learning, I think it's, it's, you know, we can only push Lincoln Center was a client, a great client, and Cirque is an ongoing spectacular client, but you can only push them so far, uh, and, and those packages tend to look a little skinnier than a sports package might. And that makes sense, because of the scale the raw audience numbers in the main, a Cirque du Soleil or a, or a Lincoln Center doesn't have that much television exposure, yep. doesn't enjoy the benefit of, although Cirque does, a boatload of content that can be sliced, diced, distributed, yep. and 
and, and literally repurposed for any number of distribution outlets. And, and, those, and those numbers and the opportunities there now have changed so dramatically over the past 10 to 15 years. And one of the things, at least I think, and I'd love your perspective on this, is this, this COVID uh, environment that we're in right now has, from my perspective, because of live sports being shut down, because of movie theaters not being able to host folks to, to go out there, because places like the Lincoln Center and you know the, the Cirque du Soleil venues just just can't open, won't open until until they believe they can do so safely. It has so accelerated what was already in motion, which is this digital distribution and capture of content slicing it, dicing it, and pushing it to not only core audiences, but derivative audiences and maintaining brand awareness, content awareness, and actually engaging fans in a virtual way that was just sort of starting. Yes, no, it's, it's, been, it's been underway, but th this has been a massive jump start for what let's just call the streaming and over-the-top television markets. Yeah, um, you know, agreed on all, right? It, it, it's, you know, there's two steps to it, right? Um, first of all, we got to play, we got to perform, right? We got to play the games and Cirque's got to get out and perform. Otherwise, you don't have the content to, to even work with, right? You're, you're dealing with non-live event content, which is always going to be less compelling than live content. So, so it sort of happens in phases, right? Those sports that now are trickling back and we're about to see an onslaught in the next month or two uh, have absolutely gotten smart and creative about ways to bring sports to the fans. And, and you know, if you watch uh, an MLS broadcast or you watch what's going to come down the pike with the NBA, you're actually going to be able to to – hear things, see things that in a, it, had we continued to gone along on a sort of linear path and a gradual path, you might not have seen, right? We're going to get dugout insight. We're going to get officials mic'd up. We're going to get just so close to the action that it, it has accelerated some of the things that frankly athletes were fighting against, right? And I, I think we're going to get a wave of data about athlete performance and the whole wearables category is a hot category. By the way, typical salesman that I am, all I can think about is, ah, great. We have a whole new category, sanitization and cleaning. <laughs> that's, uh, that's where my head goes is that's the, that's the great new opportunity. Testing companies, right? There's 20 of them now. Let's go, let's go get that money. But I, but I, uh, I, I digress. And I think your point's dead on. It is accelerated the opportunity for consumers to get game insight uh, and engagement that they that was coming, but it's now going to come at a faster pace. So there's a silver lining in all this, which is, you know, when the world gets back to normal, in quotes, um, the the at home opportunity to consume is going to just be even more extraordinary. I actually worry, Carl, to some degree that the at-home experience becomes so great, right? The access so great, the insight so great, the picture's so great, the word's so great. Why do I need to go to the stadium? 
Well, that's a really good, that's a really good question. And I, and I think it, you know, fundamentally you and I both know, cause we've been to enough stadiums in our lifetime that there's really no substitute for that yeah, it's experience yep. in the venue with the energy, what watching it live, that, that is what it is. And I don't think that ever changes. What may change is the frequency with which yeah. folks actually attend yeah. the live game. Yeah, I that's think a longer, that's a longer term issue because you and I both know that what's occurred on the streaming digital content distribution side accelerated by COVID is only going to keep going at warp speed. It, yeah. that you will not be able to put that genie back in the bottle and yep. they will live side by side. And I hearken back to my days at Universal Studios when, you know, what was emerging was an MP3. Well, people didn't know what an MP3 was 20 plus years ago. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what happened and what fundamentally changed in the music industry is when you and I were going to concerts back in the day, w the, the bands were awesome, but they were there to promote the album that they had just released yeah. that spring. That business model has been flipped on its head now with digital music. And let's be, let's be real. Digital music is virtually free out there, right? I mean, yeah, you pay Pandora Plus. Yeah, you pay Spotify. But, but here's the point. The bands now go on tour. And as the Rolling Stones get prepared for their 10th uh, farewell tour, uh, <laughs> that's where the money is. That it, and, and so when this live environment gets so shrunken um, and in today's, I mean, this day, non-existent, when that live opportunity comes back, I think we'll see a massive pent-up demand to attend the live shows. I How long that's sustainable, that all remains to be seen. Yep. Your, your take on that? And, and your point's a good one. There is no substitute for the, the energy and the community feel and to be able, frankly, to say, I was there when, right? That's, that's just, we're never going to lose that. The magic, Carl, I think, is you take the at-home the, the at access and you bring it to the ballpark or to the arena. Right. Um, so that you, you are there live, you're there with the energy, you're there with the community. And stadiums are doing this, right? I mean, we have smart stadiums everywhere, but they're going to get even smarter faster in this environment, I think. It, I completely agree with you. And this has the creatives in the world, you know, salivating. No question. Everything's technology enabled. The technology, you know, surrounds the creative. Uh, and that's kind of the beauty between this human spirit on the creative side and what we would call artificial intelligence or artificial reality or, or virtual intelligence or, or, or whatever. The, where those two meet is where humans and technology intersect and the result is really extraordinary. It's, it's been a lot of fun so far. I think the, the most fun is, is yet to come. Uh, let's switch gears a little bit here. I wanna get into some uh, leadership and management capabilities. So a couple of questions and... and, and I, I, can, I, I can answer those, I don't have any, but go ahead and ask your question. Well, well, fundamentally untrue. So this is the Best Boss Ever podcast series. So question to you, who was your best boss ever and or mentor? They could be the same or different. Uh, I, I, for me, it's an easy one. Um, I worked for a guy at Advantage International who was my boss for a number of years and then 
you know, uh, due to his good graces, I became his partner. But I worked for a guy named Frank Craighill. Um, and this is, you know, ancient history. I worked for him from uh, 1987 to 2000. I was the VP marketing of Advantage, which became Octagon. And then I ran the, you know, the alliances group, basically the non-agent side of Octagon. And Frank had just, uh, you know, an extraordinarily bright guy who understood the notion of giving talented people rope and being a sounding board, but basically staying out of the way. And, uh, you know, I genuinely owe my career to, to him and his style and way of thinking. He had a couple of great expressions, one of which was, leave the last nickel. So, uh, you know, in a negotiation, you don't have to get every single penny and every, every single nickel. And he had a great sort of Eastern Chinese view of history, which was what goes around comes around. And um, uh, if you don't make a deal on this round, but you make a really good impression, two, three, four, five years later, you'll come back and that same person will, will buy something from you. And he had a great really long-term view of relationships and uh, just was a, a, a spectacular guy. So I think I, um, you know, the typical view of a salesperson is sort of, uh, you know, uh, high, high speed, uh, you know, persistent, uh, sometimes too much persistence to be point of being a pest. And Frank was none of those. He was, he was professional, um, and he just had a, a special demeanor, uh, and a way of working with, uh, people underneath him that I've tried to keep going anyway, uh, too long winded, but he was, he was spectacular. End of the day, give smart people rope, give them counsel, let them go out and make their own mistakes. And if you, if you surround yourself with good people, you can't miss. That is, that is a great answer because I've watched you for for a long time where we've already you know damaged ourselves by dating each other and our and the nature of our relationship but i've watched you hire people i've watched you mold people i've watched you lead people would, would you say that the attributes that you learned and watched frank display came with you in your leadership style yeah yeah i sometimes when i give my little talks i sometimes use the expression um Go to be, I call it be a human being school, right? We're, we're, we're people that change their persona from their non-work life to their work life, I think are asking for trouble, right? We are who we are. And if all of a sudden in a work environment, you're trying to be too tough or trying to win the negotiation or, or try to demonstrate a capability you don't have, or you're unwilling to say, I don't know, all things that you wouldn't do in your regular life, right? And you're out of work life. I think that comes through. And if you, if you're just, you know, it's a, it's a hackneyed expression, but if you're just true to yourself uh, and be a human being, you're going to be, you're going to be fine. It's, I think people who think you have to flip a switch and somehow you have a different persona, uh, I don't think that works. I think ultimately you fail because you're not, you're not true to yourself. Right. I, I have five, uh, five attributes. Uh, you know, we've all learned and, and I would attribute 
these attributes to a gentleman named Dave Anderson, wrote a great book, I read it. He said, there are five things that every one of us are born with. These are, these are innate qualities and attributes that cannot be taught, they're native. And I, I, you know, to make it easy to remember, the acrostic is cadet. C stands for character. And it sounds like Frank had it, you, whatever you didn't have or wherever you may have said, you know, I could, I could use a little help here. Clearly, your point about being true to yourself is rooted in character. The second is attitude. And, you know, we all get out of bed in the morning and we have an attitude. And, you know, if you come to work with a bad attitude, it shows and it has a really dampening and in some instances poisonous effect on your working colleagues. Uh, and then the D and the E, drive and energy, those go hand in glove. But, you know, I, I, I know the energy quotient of Harlan Stone and it's, you know, you're, you're revving at high RPMs pretty much all the time. And the last one is talent. And, and that's also goes back to sort of being your, yourself and understanding not only where your talent is, but recognizing it and then seeking to grow it, enhance it, polish it, improve it. I, I, that's a great, um, that is a great acrostic. I, I like that a lot. Um, you know, Carl, the other thing, and, and you know, you and I have had nothing but fun together for many, many years and great conversations and, and always enjoy each other's company. But I remind people and particularly the young people in your audience, this is an unbelievably fun industry, right? We're not, we're not digging ditches. Um, frankly, we're not doing brain surgery, right? You can go home and go to sleep at night. It's, it's important. You want to do a good job, but it's not the most important thing in the world, right? If right. Snickers sells a few fewer candy bars because the sponsorship wasn't perfect, it's okay. Life, life's going to go on. So part of success in this business, I think, is to recognize what a fun, interesting, engaging business it is. We're blessed to be in it. And frankly, the people that you are working with want to have fun and enjoy your company. When they, when they do analysis of why sponsorships get renewed, Yes, the metrics are important. Uh, yes, the goals are important. Did we achieve our goals? But very often the numbers are, you know, north of 40% for how important was the person you worked with, right? If you right. like the person you've been dealing with and your partnership was handled well, you're going to renew. If you, the guy was a pain in the ass and telling you no all the time, you're not going to renew. Exactly. So the people side of this business is important. And there's just not a reason to to be anything except positive and, and energetic in this business. It's a, it's oh, that's a right. Great fun, place fun, fun and humor cover a lot of errors. They do. And, and I'm, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move us into the lightning round here. We've got about Perfect. 90 seconds left, and I'm going to come at you um, pretty hard with some, some questions. So tribute to one of my favorites, Cheryl Crow. Tell us what your favorite mistake was. Uh, my, my favorite and worst mistake, I would say, was uh, my first year at U.S. Open. Uh, Olympus Cameras was a sponsor. Olympus makes lots of different consumer electronics. They make copiers. They make home electronics. They make toaster. You name it, they make it. I got it in my head. 
that we needed new scoreboards and that Panasonic was the perfect company to give us scoreboards and be a sponsor. So I, I made a deal with Panasonic that they were in the home electronics business. Olympus would stay in their lane of the camera business. Well, look, companies don't stay in lanes and CMOs who are each spending north of three, $4 million are gonna, are gonna want to get maximum value out of the event. And I refereed a two week war between those two and I will never make that mistake again. I guess I would call it category creep. And while all my answers were correct technically and by the contract, they weren't right spiritually. So uh, bad mistake, oversold, tried to get the last nickel and shouldn't have. Great lesson folks. Just pay attention. That was, that was from the horse's mouth. Okay, beverage of choice, beer, wine, other. Uh, beer, although July, August, rum punch. <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, so I, I know you. So Burlington, Vermont on the lake or Martha's Vineyard? Oh, God. L love them both. Uh, I, guess, I guess mountain versus beach at the end of the day, but... but uh, any and all, good by me. Right. Best place you and your wife and family have ever been? Um, other than right here at home, I would say New Zealand. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Um, last one, always finish with the female band or vocalist question. It's my, one of my favorite genres. Uh, this is female folk singers from way back when. Judy Collins or Joni Mitchell? Oh God, I, I, I love them both. I love, I, love I, call, I have like a slit my wrist track, right? Of female, female vocalists from the 60s and 70s. That is uh, right, the, 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 the sadder it gets, I don't know why, but the more, the more I like it, I, I love Joni Mitchell. She's the greatest, so that's my, uh, that's my, that's my go-to. Miles of Isles. Miles of Isles, you got it. Harlan, you've been terrific, really insightful commentary, uh, great benefit and wisdom for the audience here. Thanks so much for being part of today's show. Carl, thanks for doing this. It's a blast. You're great at it, and, uh, and good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. There's more to come every week, so please... Subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Pandora, and many others. Also visit our website at thebestbossever.com where you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn, as well as find more compelling content. Until next week, remember, words matter.